0: He's the Michael Jordan of playing against the Celtics. It doesn't make any sense. Ask about me. I'm like, listen, there's got to be some kind of way that we can like groundhog day Evan Fournier so that he, every game he thinks he's playing the Celtics. (laughs)
1: Right, so Clay Day, baby. It was Clay Day. It finally arrived at Chase Center over the weekend and it did not disappoint. After a two-year absence from the NBA, Clay Thompson returned to the court against the Cavaliers. And posted 17 points on seven of 18 shooting. We knew he was going to get him up and he got him up. He got him. But more, but more importantly, they finally gave the NBA world another look at the Splash Brothers. I was kind of waiting to see what would happen with Steph because he's been a slope, but the Warriors team, you know, they seem to be just marching on towards a Western Conference title. What are your thoughts, Jason? What are your takeaways after watching Clay play on Sunday on Clay Day? Well, you know, it. <sighs>
0: You watch so much sports, it's easy sometimes, I think, to get, like, cynical about stuff, especially about, like, teams that are dominant teams. The, you know, the Warriors have been a team in the mix, you know, the last couple seasons aside for, like, almost a decade now, and it's easy to just kind of write off a lot of stuff, like, as this kind of Clay Day branding, as, like, narrative, and, you know, stuff to get people to click, etc. cetera, but... First of all, watching the game, super exciting. Uh, Clay, a little bit of rust, but he moved well. He had a dunk that was like, I literally, I was like making dinner and peeking around (laughs) at the TV and I just went like, oh my God! (laughs) My girlfriend was like, what happened? Did you like burn something? I was like, no, Clay just dunked. Um, But like watching the way that team interacts, listening to the post-game conversations uh, with Clay and with Steve Kerr and with Steph Curry, the way that team relates to each other is just really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Draymond, you know, notably was on the court for just a possession. He wanted to be out there when when Clay got his first basket, had the first play called for him, was out there. You know, after uh, Clay's first game back after nine hundred plus uh, days, yeah, that kind of relationship, that kind of bonding, that you don't really, you don't see that very often. You know, and he for subbed sure. out right away, but you just don't. That is really special, and the way that that team relates to each other is special, and I I think there's something about um, Steph and Clay being the children of pro players that allows them to maybe appreciate how hard it is to get to the place that they have have reached, and it was just really cool. It was really cool to see him back. Um, Again, I, I can't remember a time that a player did something like that kind of display where Draymond was like, I, I want to be out here for my teammate yeah. and then I'm going to sub off and continue my rehab for my calf injury. That is just, you don't see that a lot.
1: It was really cool. You what'd you, what'd you
0: What'd you think of it?
1: You know, you definitely don't see that a lot. And that's a culture that's been built starting with Mark Jackson. I always have to say, you know, Mark Jackson built that team and he built a culture around that team that you can see that culture is thriving for years and years, even when things weren't going well, the culture, you know, there was arguments and we know everything that happened and we know, but. That culture, the way that you can tell if a culture is strong is how does it bounce back or how does it survive when things happen? And they had a bad season and everyone was talking about the dynasty was over and they kept their culture intact because you can see it by, like you said, acts from Draymond and even just going back to clay. And it's so mentally hard. It's, it's mentally tough yeah. to rehab one injury. I mean, you rehab an ACL injury and you you hear people talk about it. It changes them It matures them. Clay not only did an ACL, but then he went and, and rehabbed one of the most, the worst injuries in sports. The Achilles is one of the hardest injuries to come back from. Everybody knows it. So he not only did one, but he did a back to back rehab, which is so tough because even with me, you know, I have to always knock on wood when I say this, but in my, in my career, I only had one injury and I tore my ankle in three places and I was blessed to be able to come back the same season. You know, I didn't even miss a full season for it. So I don't even know what it's like to put in that much time and that much energy. Because when you put in that much time and effort, usually you got a game on Sunday or Monday or sometime that week. Yeah, that you can show for it. He went two years without getting we like the glory of put the work for your ethic you know that you want to show your your work and he went two years without getting able to show his work and so on clay day the whole sports world backed him and and almost supported him in his return and I thought it was it was one of those sports moments where you know we've been hearing a lot about players coming in and out of health and safety protocols and their returns and we don't even hear so much about injuries this season as we do all the other different things, but this was one of those sports moments where the fans were engaged and, you know, at golden state, those fans were definitely going to be <laughs> engaged, but it wasn't just golden state fans. You know, I saw shouts oh, to my yeah. guy, King Josiah. He, he, you know, he showed that he, he did a, a meme about when NBA Twitter and golden state warriors, Twitter put down, you know, and, and joined in together. And it was basically like, you know, people like joining in, but it was a moment for all of sports, not just Golden State fans, not just, you know, Clay Thompson fans. It was a sports moment that happened in Clay Day. And so I was happy. Look, I was excited. I called the Hawks game that day at 3.30. We had a Hawks game. Unfortunately, we lost. Come back home, guys. Ten of twelve on the road. We'll talk about that later. But I was excited that our Hawks game was at three thirty, so that I could be sitting front and center for Clay Day. So just to kind of give it the magnitude, that's that's how I felt.
0: Clay's post game uh, was really cool. Uh, very extended. He was very open about what he was feeling, things going through his mind uh, during the plays. For the dunk, uh, he was asked what, like, well, what what he was feeling uh, for that that dunk that he had, which is crazy because that's not even something that you would consider in Clay's repertoire yes. like <laughs> pre the injuries so the adrenaline must have been flowing uh really thick but he said you know I just saw the rim it obviously like sustained his confidence the fact that he had that kind of pop and that kind of leaping is something again that he hasn't shown uh, that much of previous to the injuries but it, what was really cool about it was in those extended remarks he talked a lot about the Warriors training staff and all the people that helped yeah. get him there. He he wasn't just like, oh, I've been working in the lab for two years, you know, grinding it out. He was uh, talking about all the people that were working with him whenever he wanted to work, that were getting his uh, his nutrition down, that were getting his training uh, regimen going for him, and were just watching him taking care to make sure that he came back the right way. You know, right. if you read stuff around the team – it seemed like he could he could have come back weeks ago, maybe, you know, as much as like a month ago. But they wanted to take their time with it, make sure it was right. Uh, they circled this particular date on the calendar and it, it all paid off. It was it was just really cool. And you're right. It was a cool like event that reached across fandoms. Yeah, You know, Clay is a really interesting figure in that way and that he's kind of <laughs> become like this cult guy, you know, yes. Not the biggest star on the team, not the biggest personality on the team. That's Trey. Uh, biggest star on the team is Steph. But he's got. I don't know if there's a player in the NBA that has the, the Q rating that he has. I don't, I've never no, heard I, anybody. I
1: completely agree because he I, has like his boat, his dog. Yeah. He has things that like people gravitate to. His personality. Yes. Type, you know, he found a way to stay clay even amongst everything that was happening to him and I think people gravitated to that knowing everything he was going through it was and even oh and not to mention he hopped on the broadcast a couple games too and I think (laughs) that that really that really took him to another place with people because they got to kind of just hear him and see him and who he is and people liked it so to his defense when people get to know him they like him
0: uh, Ed Zitron, who is a writer and a PR professional uh, in the Bay Area, tweeted uh, about Clay. One time he was next to me on a plane. He spent the entire time with no headphones writing in a notebook stuff like, you're more than just a player. <laughs> it's like, stuff, <laughs> like <that. laughs> stuff like that is just so funny to me because Clay is, no, uh, you know, famously is a very old fashioned guy. He gets like the the print edition of the paper in front of his logger. he reads the paper, like is not on phones a lot, has the boat, did an interview wearing the captain's hat. <laughs> like, yep. Yeah. Is just a is <laughs> just, just an interesting guy. And you add on to that that just has a hunger and a nose for the big moment. Like Definitely. there I, I has some of the most emblematic warriors moments where he just shoots them from out of a game back into a game, back into a playoff series. It's just, like, is a really fun uh, player, and especially in a league where personalities matter more than others. The NBA, he's just got, like, one of the most fun ones. He's just, like, a fun guy to think about. He definitely does. You
1: know, he, like— Obviously, it takes two to tango, but he's Mm -hmm. the reason that they became the Splash Brothers, because we started to know that Steph was going to be Steph at a certain point. But what made it this phenomenon to your point is like Steph would torch a team, hit them with six threes. And it's like, oh, my God, this is Steph's quarter. And then here comes the third quarter and Clay would come in and make seven of his own. And it's like. Oh my gosh! What are we gonna do? Like that's kind of like the Clay phenomenon and what he is. It was that he can lay dormant for yes a certain amount of time <laughs> while Steph goes about roasting and toasting the opponents. <laughs> and dormant. just the moment you think that you got Steph under control, he checks he checks out or goes to the bench, or they're even still in together. Yeah. Here comes Clay with 11 his torch. threes. So, yeah. 11 yes! threes
0: against OKC yes! in game six. That kind of stuff.
1: And that's exactly it. It's that moment that he finds his moments and boy, does he set it off. So, I mean, I, I don't think that there's like, you know, there was so much buzz around even a Kyrie return just because of what was going on. Right. But what we saw with this Clay day, I mean, I think it was good for the sport. I know the NBA got to be happy about it alongside. All the talk that's going on with All Stars, so I know that these moments are are huge, not only for Clay, but these are big moments for the league.
0: You mentioned uh, your injury and and uh, you know how fortunate you were to not. Uh, suffer from serious injury over the course of your career, but even coming back from it, like how soon do the jitters go away? And do you trust your body again? Because Clay talked a lot about that, of just being like it taking a little bit of a couple of uh, times running up and down the court to feel like he wouldn't think about it. He could just go like when he went on for that dunk, he talked about, I just saw the rim. I didn't see defenders. I just saw the rim. How long did it take for you to feel like I know my body I'm back?
1: Well, You know, mine was a little bit different because mine wasn't as serious as theirs because I want to say that to make sure people understand I'm not acting like I'm no a hero. But for mine, I started playing way before I should have played. So I was like, we basically put a cast on my ankle. We put so much ankle tape that it was like you, I couldn't cut off the tape myself. I probably shouldn't have been playing, but hey, this is sports. So I was already playing when I was like... I was so gimpy. Like if you you could literally go back and watch footage of when I was playing to that time, I was running with a clear, distinct limp. And so I was trying to make my body trust me. And my body wasn't ready. My body was like, no, 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 we're not ready. And I was like, no, we're ready. So I was like kind of the reverse. Um, but when you think about stuff like that, it, it I think about a Derrick Rose. I remember when mm. he came back from his injury and the doctors were saying, you know, he's cleared medically. Everything medically is cleared, but... He had to clear that hurdle mentally of, do I trust myself? Do I run? Do I, yeah. can I jump as high? Am I going to get injured again? And I think that with Clay, it would be completely understandable if he had this huge barrier because
2: he Absolutely. trusted himself.
1: If he, if he trusted himself after the first time after his ACL and then he goes out and gets another injury for whatever reason. It's going to make you apprehensive automatically. So for him to just say he even saw the rim and just punched it and dunked it, that's like a huge win rehab-wise because you had two injuries back-to-back. But I'm just saying, like, you know, when you get into those type of situations, there's no clear-cut date there's no clear-cut medical oh this player has been six months he should be good to go it really is a mental game at this point so I, I mean it's not even just the rust too it's yeah. the rhythm of the game the speed of the game you got to catch back up you it's this is people that are playing at the high these are the most elite athletes in the world and, and there's no mercy out there like nobody no.
0: nobody's like oh uh, I, I'm not gonna go at clay hard because he's just coming back and it's clay now, N- people are none. like I want to yeah, I, I want to shut this down. I'm not here. The Cavaliers are having a, gr- like, it can't be said enough. They are having a great season. Like, if you look That's- at their advanced numbers, there's a world in which they are like a title contender. They're playing great. They're not sitting here being like, well, let's let's let Clay get off. And no, you go right at him. You try. You you want to spoil the party. Everybody wants
1: to spoil the party like a ring ceremony night. Yes. Spoil the party. You're knocked out of the playoffs and you still got games to go. Well, guess what? Spoiler alert, like, that's just, (laughs) that's just any competitor is not going to want to. So for Clay to even, and I know he got like 18 shots up in 20 minutes. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) He's a splash brother. He's going to let it fly. You better not have been surprised about that. But even still, for him to still be able to compete, dunk on people. I mean, he has to, like, and you hear, athletes talk, you have to manage expectations and so for clay he should definitely be excited for that game one coming off of two-year absence he should be ecstatic
0: well since we've last talked to each other our respective teams the uh, the knicks and the atlanta hawks have had some ups and had some downs your hawks are uh, getting healthy uh, right now which is uh, which is a great sign uh my knicks Uh, have endured uh, some really emblematic wins, like one over uh, the Celtics uh, over the weekend, but then uh, followed up by a quick loss. Both teams have had to deal with players in and out due to COVID. Uh, Renee, how are you feeling about your team? Uh, The Hawks are currently sitting at 17 and 22. A little disappointing, but like, as I said, you guys are getting healthy. How are you feeling right now?
1: You know, I'm feeling... Intrigued. And the reason I say that I called the Hawks game on Sunday, I'm going to be calling the Hawks game on Wednesday, I'm calling another game on Friday. Like, I'm going to be all the way in on the foxhole for the Hawks. And the reason I'm intrigued is because. The players are saying the right things as they should. And we, like you said, there's been a lot of inconsistency with health and safety protocols. But honestly, that's been a lot of teams. So Every I team, almost, everybody's I almost it. just wipe that whole yeah. thing out because everybody's dealing with that same thing. So I want to see, cause we love to do this. We go on the road and we don't play great. And then we come home and we figure it out and we roll off a whole string of runs. Um, this is also around the time last year where we had a coaching change and we hit a super another level. So it's like we're at the same position we were yeah. last year, almost in the same type of circumstances. So I'm really intrigued to see, well, what is this year going to look like? Because it's not we're starting to see with the Hawks. It's not no magic button that you flip and all of a sudden yes. you're a good team and all of a sudden everything works out. No, we're back at the exact same position we were last year. We're coming home for 10 of the next 12 games. What are we going to do? Yeah. What are we going to look like? Are we going to get back to that defensive team that we knew is the block party going to be open in the A again? Like I want to see like where are we going to take this cuz we're at that point of the fork in the road where all right, we were here last year. It's not over yet, but we can't coast till All-Star cuz that's what a lot of teams do. You know, you just try to get to All-Star weekend where you can recharge and revamp. We don't have that luxury. So, what are we going to do leading into All-Star? What are we going to do? After All-Star, because I know that Trey has broken a lot of records. You know, yeah. he—17 straight games with 25 or more, something really wild like that. But he said it himself— those individual awards don't really feel so great if your team is struggling. So I want to see what we're going to do just kind of at this fork in the road. But what are your, like, what what have you been seeing? What are your thoughts? What's going on in your world? Well,
0: I wanted to ask you first, with all the health and safety stuff and so many players coming yeah. in and out and players, you know, NBA guys have joked about it. Like, they, they weren't quite sure, like, who some of their teammates were at certain times uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks. How important does... Coaching become and how do you? Because I would imagine you got to keep it simple. If you're if you're having guys come in and out, you've got players mm-hmm. that like have are joining the team for ten days, you know, and are probably not familiar with the schemes you're running. How, how important does the stuff you run and the way the coach communicates then become? You know, across the board, it seems like you you really want to simplify it for the newcomers. Yeah.
1: No, I mean, you have to. And Coach Nate McMillan, which is the head coach of the Hawks, who's now out right now for health and safety protocols. But while Um, he was there, there, um, he had made a statement that said for the past three games, we've had to show our players where the locker room was at shoot around.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's crazy. That's crazy.
1: To kind of put it in perspective. Sometimes it's not even about the plays it's about like even getting the players to the trainers and getting them to the right actual locations and then figuring out the plays cuz if you're showing somebody the locker room is shoot around well, there's a lot they're taking in, so you do have to simplify it. I think the thing about basketball is there's only a certain amount of things that you can do. Like, if I go to a team and they tell me horns, they tell me five down, they tell me four across, they tell me, I, like, there's certain words that I just know I don't have to learn that play. Right. Oh, we're running horns. All right. We're running four up, the four pops. Okay. The five, like, you know, like there's certain things that players should know when you're at that level that you don't have to teach. But there's still a chemistry thing that you can't teach. Yeah. So, yes, you might they you might be able to tell them we're going to keep it simple. We're going to do wing pick and rolls, which is what we call five up. We'll do a pin down, which is two down. You can say all of those things, but the team chemistry part, no teams are going to be able to have. So that's why it's so important that if you have veterans on your team and everybody always laughs about the veteran signs and, oh, why did you give that guy that <laughs> much money? This is where the veterans earn all of their money. They know what to do. They've been around the
0: block. You don't need to tell them twice. They know exactly what you're running. And they're gonna
1: take that new guy and he, yeah. they're gonna sit. Bes- they're gonna sit the new guy beside the veteran in the locker yeah. room so that the veteran can talk to them even after the pregame speech. All right. So just so you know, when you come in, make sure you do this or you know what we need from you is this guy's gonna like that veteran is going to yeah. talk them through all of that stuff and even on the court, like they're gonna do it on the court. So when you have those veterans. And everybody always talking about like you know who was it? Uh, uh, Haslam, Yadonis Haslam yes. <laughs> down there. At, but look at what Miami doing. They've da- yep. like I'm just yep. saying when you see teams with strong veteran presence, Phoenix Suns. Well, yeah, when you start to have all this inconsistency with COVID and health and safety protocols, the veterans are the ones when you see the teams keeping it nice and level. Those teams typically have a very strong veteran base.
0: Well, let's talk about uh, my New York Knicks. They uh, On Thursday, they had one of the best wins of the season with Evan Fournier going for a career-high. Going crazy. Going crazy career-high 41 points.
1: 10 three-pointers, 10 of 14. But he always (laughs) scorches the Celtics, though, right? Like, isn't
0: that— He's the Michael Jordan of playing (laughs) against the Celtics. It doesn't make any sense. Ask about me. I'm like, listen, there's got to be some kind of way that we can, like— Groundhog Day, Evan Fournier, so that he every game he thinks he's playing the Celtics. Just have the coaches and everybody else like put Celtics stuff up, like every single game. So he only thinks he's playing that team. But so Evan Fournier went crazy. And then RJ Barrett, who uh, was ice cold, like in the freezer, I think he'd only hit three shots in the whole game to that point. Banked a three, won the game at the buzzer. Crazy. Crazy. Then they come back over the weekend and health and safety protocols. We were their head again. Lots of players out, including Evan Fournier. uh, Lost to the Celtics. They only scored 75 points, which was like a 90s score. Um, But, well, kind of like the big conversation was that during that Celtics game, Julius Randle, who has had a down season, let's just admit it, right? I think your Hawks had something to do with giving the league the kind of formula for how you can stymie Julius a, a, a team where Julius Randle is the, uh, the team's best player hawks gave the league the blueprint on how you could shut that down and 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 Julius has had a down season um there've been boos at the garden occasionally but Julius had a had a really nice game uh Thursday against the Celtics and hit a big shot came down and gave a thumbs down to the crowd he was asked about it yikes um, and, you know, what did you mean by that? And he was like, it meant, uh, shut the fuck up. He's then fine by that. I don't think this is an, is necessarily a big deal, but Renee, where do you come down on uh, clapping back at fans yes. and uh, fans booing where, where do we go with that? Cause I can see both well, sides of it.
1: I see both sides of it as well. But so let me just, first of all, I grew up in West Virginia Yeah. So, I will just start there. So, I grew up in a place where, you know, they're going to get turned up and I dealt with that. And then I went to Yukon. We're not the most beloved, contrary to what people think. There's a lot of true? people that don't like to people. see people. Really? People don't love you. <laughs> people are not. Yeah, gonna, you know? You people find don't willingly. really. You know <laughs> what I'm saying? So, like, I'm very accustomed to getting booed. Honestly, for me, that's kind of a little bit of fuel. Like, I don't really care if you boo me, but if you really are getting into it if the fan's like, oh, y'all took time and effort. Y'all created chance for us. It's lit. Like, it's turned up. We had some real battles with Rutgers in the Big East days, and it was turned up. So I've never been accustomed to clapping back at the fans. The way you clap back at the fans is you hit them with a wah-wah. Knocking (laughs) a three, and it gets really quiet in there, you know? It gets, and then all of a sudden, you don't hear anything. It gets quiet. There's a timeout. But Julius Randle, I know everybody's built different, you know? And so Julius Randle, he hit him with the thumbs down. I didn't even know what it was. It came from the Mets.
0: So the Mets, the New York Mets were the first New York area team to really start doing this, that fans were booing them. And then whenever they'd get a hit, Mets players would do the thumbs down like, eh. That's
1: crazy. Yeah. So I didn't even, so live, I didn't even get the reference. You know, I'm like, yeah. I thought he was saying the defense is a thumbs down. Right. Like, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. trashing <laughs> him right in his face. I love it. Give me more. So, you know, like, I thought that was what was happening. But it goes to a bigger thing. I just, you know, like, when I even said those scenarios, I talked about, like, the fans booing. They weren't our home fans. So right. when I was at UConn and it was a home game, you could forget it you're not going to out-boo us at a, a a home game at UConn. The UConn fans don't do that. And so there are fans that do that, though, and I, I think that's tough because when you think about, I know nobody cares. Athletes make a lot of money. We have a great yeah. life. <laughs> blah, blah, blah I know no one cares. But when you think about the lifestyle of an athlete, every time you go to work, your performance is on display for people to critique, and they critique it loudly on social media when you leave work You take your work home. That's a real thing. People get nasty on the court. We've seen fans spit, throw food, throw things. Athletes have to take a lot. I get it. It comes with the business. It ha- they, But athletes have to take a lot. One of the things for me as an athlete that I took pride in is that I played for the name on the front of my jersey, which was my team. And I played for the fans. Like, I love that the fans got hype when I would dive on the ground. And yes, I had floor burns for the next week, yeah. but it was worth it. But when you have fans that are booing you, your own home team fans... That's tough for me. Like that's tough because I'm a player that like I grind for the fans. So if y'all booing me and I'm grinding for y'all to put on for my home team or our home city and y'all are booing me, that's a hard pill for me to swallow. So I get it. Sometimes teams don't perform to the level that the fans would want them to. And you know what? If a team isn't giving their all, okay, I get it. Like as fans, you paid your good, Mm hard-earned money. I get it. But I'm one of those players that like I gave it everything I had. And so my home – Court fans were booing me. Yeah, that's tough. Like that's a tough pill to swallow. I see it as, it's like a
0: lose lose, where both sides have a point. Right? It's listen. Is it great that the New York fans are booing uh, their own team in the the Garden? No, but at the same time, uh, the fervor that we have seen from <laughs> Knicks fans. Okay, we'll just call it fervor. Okay, um, great word. When it's when it's hitting and when it's good, it is celebrated across sports. People, you know, how many times have we heard, oh man, when the Knicks are good, it's great for the league. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like people love it. Right. What the flip side of that coin is when you have a fan base that is that plugged in, that cares that much, et cetera, they're going to boo sometimes. Okay. It's not great, but it happens. Yep. From the other side of it, It's unreasonable to expect Julius Randall to not feel bad about it. He's going to feel a type of way. Of course! You know, his partner and his kid are always in the stands, and here he is getting booed. That's going to hit you different. You're going to feel a type of way about that, and that's just human nature. Getting to this particular incident, it's just like a no-win, you know? Julius doing the thumbs down. Ultimately, it's the fans are not going to stop doing it. (laughs) And now you're going to have to have this conversation about what you meant and what – we're not just going to be able to let it go. If we lived in a world where you give the thumbs down, the fans know what it is, we've all moved on from it. I'm I'm sure no – I'm sure there is literally not one Knicks fan that was sitting in the stands being like, how dare Julius give us – no one cared. (laughs) No one cared about it. But – what happens next? You're going to have the beat reporters whose job uh, yep. it is to ask the question, what did you mean by that? And now he's going to expound on it. he says, I meant shut the fuck up. And now there's and the And now crime. that
1: was wild. That, That's, that wild. was wild. That, that, was, <laughs> that was the wild part, Jason. It's like, of course a player is going to feel some type of way about the yeah. fans booing. Of course. And should he have reacted? Yes or no. But if he hit the thumbs down, right? And then yeah. I get to the media the media press conference and they're like what would you hit the thumbs down for you better think of something creative something to say something else something you, can't yeah, just, you can you can't you that. can't just tell the truth i'm sorry you can't <laughs> just even if that was the truth Julius Randle, you can't tell a world of Knicks fans, the bing bong world. You can't tell this fan base of all fan bases. Like if you said that to the Utah Jazz fan base, you know what? You might have it might have had a little sizzle to it and then it would have died down. But you mean to tell me you told the New York Knicks fan base to shut up? Oh, baby. Oh, baby.
0: Serbian tennis star, uh, anti-vax international superstar Novak Djokovic has moved closer to competing for his record 21st Grand Slam title after an Australian judge ordered his release from immigration detention. Recently, this is the latest development in a, a saga that has stretched over the last few days. And stems from uh, Djokovic's stance on re- uh, basically refusing to get vaccinated for uh, COVID nineteen. Joining us now is Tumaini Kariol, reporter for the Guardian, uh, with all the latest. Tumaini, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, so what is the latest here on uh, on the Djokovic saga?
4: Um, so, so, yeah, as you said, his visa had been cancelled and his visa was reinstated, and he was like free to leave this detainment facility. That he's been at for four nights, which is completely crazy just yeah. to, to think that the world number one tennis player has been in you know a detainment facility for four days. I'm still wrapping my head around that, but um so yeah he he's he's kind of free to go, but it's still not like certain what's gonna to happen. The actual court proceedings were very specific, like he won the case out of kind of a procedural thing. Because mm. when he um, landed in Melbourne, the Border Force, I think they're called, they pressured him into agreeing to the suspension of his visa without being able to speak to his lawyer or like Tennis Australia, the Australian governing body. So, yeah, essentially that aspect got suspended. But the federal government here, I think they still believe that he doesn't have the right medical exemption to be in Australia.
0: Two things can be true in my reading of this. One is that I disagree with uh, Novak's uh, political stance vis-a-vis many things, including uh, his stance on vaccines. And also it seems like the Australian government maybe is confused within itself about what the actual rules and exemptions to those rules are. What exactly happened that one – Allowed Novak to think that he was good to come into the country, and two, that then had him, as you mentioned, sitting in a immigration detention facility for a number of days.
4: Yeah, it's a complete mess.
1: <laughs> clearly,
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, clearly. A hot- <laughs> that's my main analysis um but like in australia we're coming to melbourne victoria and jokovic got his medical exemption through medical panels that were created by the state of victoria and also tennis australia they had separate panels but the victoria and federal state are political opposites and they don't interact and so he got his clearance through them and he believed that you know, it's from the Victoria State. I think it's totally understandable that he believed that he had all the documents to travel to Australia and play, but the federal government controlled their borders, not Victoria State. And the federal government have decided that his medical exemption isn't sufficient. The exemption is down to him being infected with COVID. And very recently, that's a whole other thing that he, he caught COVID on December 16th. So, you know, just a few weeks ago. Well, he says he did anyway. So, yeah, that's...
0: <laughs> <I'm> just, <laughs> no what does, shame, that, mean? What <laughs> does like, <laughs> that mean? What does that mean? I mean, to me, like, the the fact that the exemption hinges on Novak saying that he had COVID a few days, a few weeks ago, with the burden of proof on that is very unclear to me. But, can, sorry, I didn't no. mean to interrupt. Yeah, no, no,
4: but we'll, <laughs> I'll get into that as well. <laughs> but, yeah, so basically the federal government decided that they weren't satisfied that it met their requirements. And also there's just a whole lot of politicking going on you know yeah um here in with the prime minister they want to be seen as you know clamping down on Djokovic who particularly after last year um when the Australian Open was held and I don't know if you saw but they had like a two-week quarantine and that got really messy with like people really angry at the players (laughs) and angry at Djokovic so also he saw like an easy win to be the guy to stop Djokovic and I mean there's a lot of things mixed up in that and to go on, like, the COVID infection, so, I mean, that's how long do you have it? <laughs> 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 right! <laughs> so, to go back a bit, tennis for a long time, like, during the summer and after the US Open in September was, like, far behind a lot of sports in terms of vaccine uptake. It was, like, at some point around, like, 50, 60 percent, and no one seemed to really care, which is obviously terrible. Um... But with the vaccine mandate for coming into Australia, the question was always who is going to be vaccinated, who's not going to. And in the end, I mean, the ATP said that 95 of the top 100 in December were vaccinated. So pretty much everyone did, aside from Djokovic. And it's been clear that Djokovic was looking for like a loophole, a a way to get in without having to be vaccinated. And lo and behold, very helpfully, he (laughs) has tested positive for COVID on December the 16th. And that in itself is like just, (laughs) you know, it would have been a bit less curious, let (laughs) me (laughs) be politically clear. But it's for people who are infected within the last six months. So if it was earlier, it would have been a bit less questionable. So there's that. And then there's also the fact that he's caught COVID on the 16th. And yet he just spent the next few days just rolling around Serbia, going to these events, being pictured at events, like giving prizes to kids. Um, <laughs> he, um, yikes, gave an interview on the 18th, like two days after he was supposedly Im- infected, he gave an interview with Lekip, the French sports mm-hmm. magazine in person, did a whole photo shoot without a mask. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so, so now it's just like, it's, has he just been going around? I mean, it's either he was going around infected with the virus or, you know, just what's going on there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's just very confusing.
1: So it doesn't have to make sense. Clearly, we've established, <laughs> but can you describe the scene outside of Yokovic's lawyer's office and outside of his hotel where he's been saying, what are the crowds talking about? What, why are they congregating? Like, what's going on over there?
4: It's, I mean, that are some of the like the craziest things I've seen. Like, outside of the detainment facility, first, like I, I went there a couple of times, and obviously he's in a immigration detainment facility where a lot of the other people inside are refugees and asylum seekers who'd, who'd come over and have been just stuck indefinitely, not really sure when they'll be able to go to you know to live normal lives and. You know, because Australia's like notoriously really, spec- yes. you know, immigrants and, and they don't like when people come by boat as well. Like they have this policy, I believe, of of not allowing them to stay in Australia. So some will be redirected to like the states or other countries, but their deterrent is basically cruelty to refugees. And so there's all of these kind of people who have been speaking to the media. And so outside of the building, you have protesters for the refugees. You have Djokovic fans, Serbians. There's a big Serbian and Balkans community in Australia as well. So just a ton of them. Like I went on Sunday and like there must have been about 300 people just like dancing and singing and it doesn't, it's just crazy. And then you have like the, of course, not all anti-vaxxers because like they have a very high rate of vaccination in Australia, but at least like anti-vaxxers slash anti-mandate slash mm. anti-whatever, you know. Mm. And so it's just, just a weird mix of just these people just like protesting together.
0: I've found that some of the discourse from the pro-Djokovic protesters about like, oh, he's in there without his phone, it's terrible, yada, yada, yada. The implication being, this is terrible for Novak, but for everybody else who's there, they are fine. They deserve to be there, but it's awful that the world number one is is being forced to live under these circumstances. Is that like, what, what are some of the pro-Djokovic arguments about this? the conditions in which Novak is being held.
4: Yeah, I mean, that starts with, like, his parents. I think his mum says something to the effect of, oh, he's in this facility with, you know, immigrants and the same thing that you're saying. And a lot of people are only really interested in their favourite tennis player and not in that he's going to be there for a couple of days, whereas these people are in these conditions for indefinitely. As I said, like, the parents have added just more kind of spies to all of this like the father you know who's just always kind of outspoken and a bit crazy to be honest like comparing him to Jesus and it it, you know it's, it's there's just a lot going on there
1: you know it's interesting because there is a lot going on there and this is about a sporting event so after missing over a week of practice do you think that Novak will actually be able to play in the open? Like, what are the expectations heading into the tournament? Like, that's something that's not necessarily been talked about a lot. But what what are the expectations there?
4: Yeah. So I think, like, in terms of, like, whether he'll play. So after the hearing ended, the government said that they reserved the right to still cancel his visa and they're still, like, going over it. In the hearing, they gave, like, 30 minutes of arguments and then they just kind of went away and you know, it was resolved. They weren't trying if they want. And if they choose to, they, they can still cancel his freeze. Or maybe they have a plan. Maybe they're playing the long game. I don't know. But if he does play a week without training is, is a lot, particularly so close to a, a slam and yeah, he's not going to be in the best condition, but at, at the same time, also, he's Novak Djokovic, you know, he's, yeah. so I think he's already like a lot better than the rest of the field and he can play himself into form during the tournament. And also, I think pretty much anyone is expecting that he'll use this as fuel and motivation. Mm-hmm. That That's what he kind of does best. Like, you know, oftentimes when he plays, crowds cheer against him, he gets booed and he always seems to just find a way to use that as motivation to win.
1: Is there a way, so I'm curious, is there a way that they don't give an answer before it's time for the slam to where it's just like he doesn't, he's not allowed to play because there was no answer. Like, is there a world where we don't get an answer before the slam?
4: Right now he is free, but they can decide then to cancel his visa. So it could be that they just don't decide to do anything and he plays and that's fine. Or, I don't know, whether it's today or next week, they decide to cancel his visa because they feel he shouldn't be in the borders. So I- I'm not sure. I do think, like, they would get a lot of criticism now for doing that, especially as I think it would require, like, executive powers from a minister. And
1: Yeah, so he's a go, basically. So he's basically good to go for the sling. I think
4: so. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, this whole thing has been so weird and, you know... Unpredictable that I don't even know what to think, to be honest. Like very shortly after he left the detainment facility, he went and played at the tournament. Like he he had his first hit there with his team and he'll probably be back there today. And I'm sure he's like already in tournament mode preparing to play this and destroy everyone as he does often.
0: He is Guardian reporter Tumani Kariol. Tumani, thank you so much for joining us and good luck uh keeping abreast of these developments as they happen.
4: Thank you for having me, and I'm gonna need all of that luck.
3: (laughs) 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 Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13.
1: A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there...
0: Uh, With the close of the NFL season, and what a close it was...
1: Week 18, baby!
0: Raiders Chargers was truly an insane game. Uh, We've already begun the customary period where, uh, you know, coaches get fired. It's Black Monday, folks. Four head coaches have already been dismissed, including Vic Fangio from Denver, Brian Flores from Miami, Matt Nagy from Chicago, Mike Zimmer from the Vikings. But at the time of this recording, Monday afternoon, uh, Giants head coach... Joe Judge continues to be Giants head coach, Joe Judge. Uh, (laughs) It's uh, it's a confusing uh, turn of events uh, for a head coach that's won four games this season. I, you know, there's a lot going on here and I think that the problems with the Giants go a lot deeper than the head coach, but the head coach is always the first one on the firing line. Uh, First of all, What are your thoughts on Black Monday, the day when we watch uh, coaches go bye bye from the
1: NFL? Well, first of all, I got to shout out to my brother in law, Ry Mel Short, because he grew up in New York. (laughs) He now lives in West Virginia with my sister, but he grew up in New York. He's an avid Giants fan. So, I know the four wins that the Giants had this season and boy, do I know all the other losses because Giants fans, (laughs) Giants fans have been going through it, like not just this season, but multiple seasons. So, you know, my thoughts on this whole Black Monday period and how this happens is I never understand in and this is not even NFL I never understand the coaching carousel where, all right, this guy got fired on Black Monday for winning three games. Let's bring him over here to our organization and see if he can win some games over here. Like, I understand that sometimes coaches do get let go and they obviously can still coach. But I always wonder, what is the... The problem with new blood in sports, like, you know, and and why are people so apprehensive? And when I even say yeah. new blood, I'm not even talking about somebody fresh off the scene, you know, really green. I'm talking about people that have been in systems for years, like are overqualified for a head coaching job. But then you go grab a guy from Black, from the Black Monday sale, and you go grab this guy and bring him to your program. I just... And like I said, this is not only NFL, it's NBA, it's all other sports, you know, like, you know, with us in the Atlanta dream, we hired Tanisha Wright. And I'm sure that, you know, it was a surprise to some people because she doesn't have any head coaching experience, but how are some people like, this is the question of all industries. How is someone supposed to get experience if no one will give them experience? And so the the
0: eternal conundrum.
1: So my thing about Black Monday, it's the craziness that we watch Black Monday happen and then we watch everybody grab people from the cell. And and not I just that's my concept. Like, why is there such a reluctancy to get new people in these positions?
0: It's a great question vis-a-vis the Giants. So the Giants have long been a family operation, right? The Mara's and the Tisha's are the the main uh, co-owners of the Giants and massive power brokers, big voices in the room, Co-owner John Mara, by all accounts, has a major influence, loves to be involved. Uh, You know, the family works for the team in various positions. Chris Mara is a VP. And if you look at it, the Giants are just – which is surprising for a team, you know, called New York that plays in New Jersey, yes, but around (laughs) one of the most international, biggest, most diverse cities in the world – The Giants are just insular. It's like everybody they hire had a connection to the team. They only like do a coaching hire or a GM hire uh, where the search encompasses like two people all with connections to either the family or the team. And that leads to guys staying in their positions way too long. You know, Dave Gettleman is going to retire. He retired uh, recently, the, uh, the GM of the team. He probably should have been fired long ago. If not for the fact that, like, he's clearly on uh, very tight with the Mara family, yeah. I would imagine that uh, John Mara would look far and wide for a, a, a GM replacement. If he could get from that GM replacement a promise that they would not like fire Chris Mara, a member of the family, you know, like there's all these other, yeah, there's all these other things that come before building a winning football team and the NFL is like, and we talk about narrative all the time in sports, right? The narrative about how, uh, you know, either players are shaping the narrative and the medias are shaping the narrative and the, own- yeah. with this particular situation in the NFL, th- that's the sport where the narrative is always winning. They will forgive you anything in the NFL if yeah. you win. I mean, and, sure. some of the, and, th- and they will forgive you some of the worst things that people can do For as sure. long as you win. It's not the case with the Giants because it's a family operation, and they clearly have a lot of loyalty to family members, to people within the organization that would be at risk if they if they hired some other GM to just come in and clean house, right? That what GM would come in is stipulations are being put on you that one we have to keep this uh, right. quarterback, we have to keep this guy, we have to keep this scout.
1: You don't have any control at that point. Th- this is the issue. Judge should be fired.
0: I, he, it may happen. Right. But ultimately, the issue is a lot deeper. And, and it's the fact that the Mara family, John Mara and the Mara family are too close to it, too involved. And no one. Listen, they own it. It's theirs. No one can actually say to them, you guys need to step back and, and get them to listen. But that's what needs to happen. That's what needs to happen. They need new voices in the room. Already, they're talking about uh, new GM names that might come in. Uh, Kevin Abrams is one of them who's been is already in the organization. It's like they need to go outside the organization. Yeah, it's an echo chamber right now. But new blood. But I don't know what it's going to happen. You know, I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't, and I don't know when. And I hope it does. But it's, I'm not hopeful that it will happen. That's your answer for why there's no new blood specifically for the Giants. All <laughs> right, it's uh, a that's family your Giants' operation. answer.
1: No, I mean, and you're making a good point of all the sports though. What you're saying, they have family ties which is stronger yeah. than than most. But in sports, you see it all the time. I mean, people could people typically hire someone in their close network. And that's that's all well and good because I get it. That's just what's going to happen in normal human life. People are going to do that. But when you get into a cycle where it's not successfully happening, like if you're constantly hiring people in your network and they're all rock stars and you guys keep leveling up and getting better, no one's going to complain about that. But the problem starts to rise when we start to see the same faces, the same characters getting a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, and we still haven't seen a certain guy get their first opportunity or that's that's the thing where it's like to me sports it's like you know no one wants to be on the bad end of the stick but at a certain point you got to take some risk and coaching look coaching I, I know that coaches are always the first to go the first to get fired and there's always a lot of other different things that that factor into that but coaching really is important they're who gets the locker room yeah. culture yes you have to bring players in that continue that culture and that believe in and buy in but a coach's voice in the locker room is huge so who you really bring in it does matter and i just keep seeing these same guys like like let's say hypothetically joe judge may lose his job I, I wouldn't put it past people to hire people back. That's the thing that blows my mind. Like if somebody has shown you that, okay, they've struggled and yes, a, different teams are different. So I'm not saying coaches don't get a job after they've had a bad season, but I'm just saying if the same coach gets three, four, or five opportunities with different teams and different stuff before a very qualified person gets their first opportunity, that's the thing.
0: Zach Rosenblatt for uh, NewJersey.com has had a great series of reports about, like, what's wrong with the Giants. And from late December, I'm just going to read this little uh, snippet for you. I think it sums up exactly what you're saying and what we've been talking about. Quote, uh, even in the face of constant strife over the last decade, John Mara has trusted his instincts. When he's evaluating the state of his franchise, he leans on trusted advisors that includes ex Giants GM Ernie Acorsi and Bill Polian. Accorsi is eighty and has been out of the NFL since two thousand six. So Polian is seventy nine, has been out since two thousand eleven, and infamously said before the two thousand eighteen NFL draft that Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson should play wide receiver. End quote. Those are the two two of the big wow. voices that John Mara listens to, and this is what I'm saying. It's like just. Let's shake it up. Even if that means some family members maybe have to lose. Listen, we know that the <laughs> that Chris Mara and other friends of the Mara family are gonna be fine. But if they have to lose their jobs, then they have to lose their jobs in the organization to allow new voices to come in and allow a GM to to you know have their implement their own plan and hire their own people. But you just gotta shake it up. It's time to shake it up, period.
1: All right, listen, I know it's been a minute, but you better Woo! still know what that time means. It's been a minute for us, but not y'all. It's buzzer beater time where we talk stories we didn't cover on the show because of time. Yes. Uh, Ray, why don't you go first? All right, cool. So I'll go first. I'll get this party started. This week is free agency week. And when I say free agency week, it's the WNBA free agency. There's a lot going on. Um, We already know that Sue Bird will be back for another season. Seattle Storm had to delete their tweet about that. So I'm not going to talk much (laughs) about free agency. Because I don't want no problems, but WNBA free agency is here. It's my first one. So we got the team last year after free agency had happened. So this is kind of like our first go around of all of this stuff. So I'm pretty excited just to see kind of, I hope people are feeling Atlanta. I don't want to say too much, but I hope people are feeling what the dream has going on.
0: Don't please do not get fined. (laughs) Uh,
1: My buzzer beater is just about seeing family. I went
0: home for the holidays and for New Year's. I got to see my mom, who I've not seen in over two years. I got to see my wow. brother and my sister in law. My nephew is now uh, almost four and is, you know, last time I saw him, he was just like a blob, you know, that just made sounds.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you know, but really you just c- hold. you, just carry you know, really, yeah,
0: really cute blob, but he, but just made sounds, <laughs> and now he's like, forget it. He's speaking in full. Sentences. He's saying stuff like, where'd you learn that? Oh, I love it. Uh, you know, he is reading. He wants to be read to. He wants to play endlessly. Uh, he's into comic books. He loves Spider-Man Venom. So that was oh really fun. Oh my gosh,
1: fun. he's a baby Jason. He's a baby me.
0: Uh, it, so it was really, it, that was really great, you know, seeing everybody again. I hope everybody got to spend the holidays around people that they love and care about. Um, it was just really great. It was really meaningful. Uh, I enjoyed that. I hope everybody got some of that too. And that's it for us, folks.
1: Love it. That's We're it back, for us. baby. We We're came back. back, baby. Happy New Year. This is our Happy New Year because right. this is our first one back. So, Happy New Year. Follow and
0: subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to subscribe to Take Line Show on YouTube for exclusive video clips from this episode plus my digital series All Caps NBA which comes okay. out every Friday. Bye folks, see you next week. <laughs> Take Line is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Carlton Gillespie and Zuri Irvin. Our executive producers are myself and Sandy Gerard. Our contributing producers are Caroline Reston, Elijah Cohn, and Jason Gallagher. Engineering, editing, and sound design by Sarah Gibbel-Laska and the folks at Chapter 4. And our theme music is produced by Brian Vasquez.
3: Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So... No, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Races, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
2: Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors.